0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. The famous author Kurt Vonnegut said, I am a scorner of the notion that there is a God who cares about what we do. I have had it right all along. I will not see God. There is no heaven. There is no judgment day. This sentiment is very popular in our world today and increasingly so. Uh, studies indicate that over the last 15 years, the number of American adults without religious conviction has almost doubled Because many people find it appealing that God is merely a myth from some bygone pre-scientific age. That final judgment is simply a scary story we tell our kids to keep them behaving. And that enlightened adults should embrace freedom. Freedom from oversight. Freedom from traditional values. Freedom to live however we want. So let us eat, drink, and be merry, because we will all die, and when we do, we will be non-existent and escape ultimate accountability for everything that we've ever done. Man, that is a popular idea today. There's one problem. It's a lie. It's a carnal fairy tale. Because there is a God. Because He is holy. Because He does care what we do. Because he will judge every person who has ever lived. And in the end, he will assign to each of us one of only two ultimate, final, and eternal destinies. In the end, there really is a heaven to be gained, and there really is a hell to be shunned. And today we're going to see that this is all true because Jesus Christ, the judge who will preside over Judgment Day, tells us all about it. And that's what we're going to see as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. And in our passage, we're going to see three important truths that will help us think about the final judgment. First, we're going to see that Jesus will judge everybody who has ever lived. Second, we're going to see some maybe surprising things that Jesus says about the role that our works play in his judgment. And third, we're going to see the only two possible outcomes that result from Jesus' judgment. We begin with our first point, that Jesus will judge everybody who has ever lived. Over the last few weeks, we've looked at the fifth and final sermon of the Lord Jesus that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel, which is called the Olivet Discourse, and it's about the shape of history. And this morning, we come to the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. And it begins like this in chapter 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations. Now what's going on here? Well, Jesus has just concluded a set of four parables about how we need to be ready for the end. And now that that's done, he returns to what he was doing in the earlier part of his discourse, where he was describing the events of the future. And he picks up where he left off. Jesus said back in chapter 24, verse 30, They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven (coughs) with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect... From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now here we see the same elements in the first few verses of our passage. So we've returned to this same point in the chronology. We are at the very end of history. The Son of Man comes to the earth. Now we've talked about this term, Son of Man, a lot lately. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. and It speaks of a prophetic figure who is both truly human and truly divine who will receive from God the Father a glorious, global, unending kingdom. And we have seen that Jesus is this Son of Man. In fact, he often refers to himself using this title in Matthew's Gospel. So as we see the Son of Man coming here, we need to understand this is talking about the second coming of Jesus. And as Jesus returns, he brings his angels with him, and then there will be a final separation ...of the saved and the lost. And that is the idea that Jesus is now going to develop. Let me also point out here that we know Jesus here is talking about the end... ...because he speaks about his glorious throne. He's mentioned this once before, back in chapter 19, verse 28... ...where he says that when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... ...he does so in what Jesus calls the new world... So as our passage begins, some really massive things have taken place. Heaven has collided with earth. Jesus has conquered and subjugated this rebellious planet, and he is now enthroned. And that's why chapter 25, verse 34, doesn't simply call Jesus the Son of Man. No, now he's called the King. Now Jesus has always been King by right and title. Now he is King in an actualized, undisputed way. His will is about to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so he, he, now he executes judgment. And we're told that before him will be gathered all the nations. Now I'm afraid we have to pause here for a moment because as we've seen over the last several weeks, the Olivet Discourse is just filled with interpretive controversies. And unfortunately, this morning's passage is no exception. To keep things simple, I'm only going to comment on the two most significant controversies this morning, but here we come to the first of them. As Jesus speaks here of the nations standing before him for judgment, what does he mean? Three options have been proposed. First, some people understand nations here to be the equivalent of what we would call countries. So they understand Jesus here to be executing judgment upon the population of each country. So here's judgment for the U.S., here's judgment for Mexico, here's judgment for Iran. Now, it is true that in the Old Testament, sometimes God judges countries. And when he does that, his judgments are always temporal, that is, confined to this world. So in the Old Testament prophets, you'll see countries are sentenced to military defeat or economic upheaval. In Ezekiel, we're told that God will turn the princes of Egypt into fools. Um, So that sort of thing happens but what happens in our passage here is quite different because here we're not talking about temporal judgments here we're talking about eternal destinies and the Bible is very clear that whether somebody goes to heaven or hell that is an individual determination that is not related to our citizenship in any particular country people are not going to go to heaven or hell just because of what country they came from in fact Revelation 5 9 praises Jesus Because he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we can't just say God's going to throw the whole population of some country into hell. Because ultimately Jesus is going to save at least some people from every background. So this first view is wrong. Heaven or hell questions are not going to be decided based on our earthly citizenship. A second and much more popular view here understands the term nations to refer only to Gentile people. So this view says that at this point, Jesus is judging everybody who's not Jewish. Some interpreters go further and say this judgment is only for Gentiles who are still on the earth at the time when Jesus returns. People who hold this view defend it by saying that the word used for nation here, often in Matthew, means only Gentiles. I'll give you two examples. Uh, Matthew 10, verse 5. Jesus says to the 12, he's sending them out on their missionary journey. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles. It's the same Greek word in our passage, translated nations. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So nations here equals Gentiles, excluding Jews. Or Matthew 20, verse 18. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Again, the same word. To be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So here again, the Jews hand Jesus over to the nations to have him killed, so nations just means Gentiles. And so these proponents of this view argue now in this same way, Matthew 25, 32, nations equals Gentiles. There's just one big problem, which is that in Matthew 25, 32, Jesus doesn't simply use the word nations. He uses the phrase all nations, and when you look that phrase up in Matthew, you will discover that it has its own meaning and appears in three other places in the book. And it is not limited only to Gentiles. So I don't hold this second view either. Instead, I hold a third view, which, means, or which recognizes that in Matthew, all nations means everybody, without exception. We see that first in chapter 24, verse 9. Jesus says, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Is that Gentiles only? That would be very hard to sustain. Because of the parallel in Mark 13:9, which says you will be beaten in synagogues. That doesn't sound like Gentiles only, does it? No, Jesus is saying everybody is going to hate his followers, Jews and Gentiles alike, that are not believers. In the same way, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. All nations cannot mean Gentiles to the exclusion of Jews. Because Jesus is prophesying the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, will be exposed to the gospel. And this is made crystal clear in one of the final commands of this book, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That certainly cannot mean Gentiles to the exclusion of Jews. If for no other reason then in Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples to go be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to make disciples of Jews and Gentiles alike. So all nations here means everybody. And that tells us that at this final judgment, everybody will stand before Jesus, Jews and Gentiles alike. We also learn from other passages in the Bible that all people will stand before Jesus, whether they have lived until his return or whether they have already died. The Old Testament teaches this plainly. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus says it too. John 5, verse 25. Listen to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For an hour is coming when all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right, what are we to take from this first point, friends? Contrary to the lies of this world, there will be a final judgment. Jesus, who is God and man, will return to this earth, and no one is safe from his examination. Our world is wrong when it tells us that death will make us non-existent, and unaccountable. Because Jesus says in Revelation 1, he has the keys to death and Hades. He has the power to return life to everybody who has died and then impose his verdict. So we need to know the Bible is telling us the truth when it says it is appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. Friends, we must and we will each stand before Jesus for judgment. John 5, 30, Jesus says, as I hear, that is from his Father, I judge, and my judgment is just. And this is a great comfort, I think. Well, it may not be if we don't know Christ. But unlike in our judicial system today, in that ultimate courtroom, we won't have to worry about a miscarriage of justice. Nobody's going to walk out of there that's guilty with a $100 bond. Nobody's going to walk free because of a technicality or because they were able to get a good attorney, you know. Nobody's going to have to worry about the integrity or competence of the judge because Jesus is the judge, and he knows and sees all. And friends, the judge of all the earth will do what is right, so we must appear before him. Well, now we come to our second point, and here Jesus says some surprising things about the role that our works play in his judgment. As everybody is gathered before Jesus, now we're told this. Look at verse 32. And he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. So everybody gets separated into just these two groups. And Jesus likens this to something the disciples would have seen in the countrysides of Judea. During the day, sheep and goats would commingle. But at night they had to be separated, because while the sheep would do well as the cold air came in, the goats needed to huddle together to keep warm. In the same way now, people are gathered into these two groups. One group is ushered to Jesus' right, which we've seen before in this book is the place of honor. The other group is on his left. They will not be honored. And now King Jesus speaks, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now those on his right are invited to participate in a glorious reward that we're going to talk about at the end of our time together. But I think what probably catches our attention here is Jesus' explanation that goes along with this invitation. As he says that those on his right have served him by ministering to him when he was hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or without clothing, or sick, or in prison. Now this statement might seem very strange to us. When was Jesus in prison except at the very end of his life? When was he so poor that he lacked clothing? What is Jesus talking about here? Thankfully, we don't have to guess because our confusion is shared by the people who are at his right hand. And I want you to remember this fact, because I'm going to come back to it in a minute. It's really important. But the people on the right are confused by his explanation, and so they ask Jesus about it. Verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So the king identifies certain deeds that were performed for a group of people that he calls the least of these my brothers. And he says, whatever was done to them, it's like it was done to Jesus himself. All right, now Jesus speaks to the group on his left. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now again, we're going to talk about the penalty this group receives at the end of our time today. But again, my guess is we're thinking really hard about what does this explanation mean as Jesus faults those on his left for failing to minister to him when he was in all of these uh, pitiable situations. The folks on the left also seem to be confused by Jesus' words. So they ask about them, verse 44. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Again, the idea is that certain deeds were not performed for this group of people that now he's calling the least of these. And so it is as though they had not done these things for Jesus himself. Now, what in the world are we to make of these verses? Jesus says to both groups, to those on the right and those on the left, He is evaluating them based on their deeds, which have been done to this group of people, the least of these my brothers in verse 40, or the least of these in verse 45. Who is this group of people? Well, this is the second major interpretive controversy. Again, there are three views. The first view says that the least of these my brothers are the poor. Those who hold to this first view basically understand Jesus to be preaching the social gospel of liberal Protestantism. So if we selflessly care for the poor, we are performing good works that will earn our salvation. If we selfishly refuse to care for the poor, we will be damned. The gospel, faith, and repentance have nothing to do with it. We are saved or lost based on our works alone. I would tell you this verse, you cannot be right. You cannot be right first... Because this would contradict the rest of the Bible. That salvation cannot be earned or merited on the basis of human performance. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. In our natural condition, we are corrupt, defiled, and condemned. Whatever deeds we do in this state, even though we may imagine that they are very good, are actually disgusting to God. They don't merit us anything. Paul agrees. Here's but one passage that we could read of many. Ephesians 2.8 By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Jesus himself likewise says in Matthew 7, that on the last day, many will approach him saying, Lord, Lord, saying, did we not do many mighty works in your name? And yet they are turned away. Not because Jesus disagrees with them that they performed those works, but because Jesus says they have failed to do the will of God, which you have seen in this book, is repentance and faith in the gospel. Or in chapter 19, when the rich young ruler comes forward and says, Hey, Jesus, what good deed do I need to do to be saved? Jesus turns him away. Friends, we are not saved by our works. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not earned by our works. So that's the first reason this passage can't be teaching a social gospel works righteousness. The rest of the Bible precludes it. But friends, I also think our passage precludes it. Because in our passage, the people gathered to Jesus' right hand are confused by this scene. It's not like as they're being gathered together they say, you know, all these years I worked so hard for the poor, I knew I was going to earn heaven. No, and, and they're shocked when Jesus makes this statement because in life the people who are saved here saw no connection between the works that they're being praised for and the reward that they're about to receive these folks haven't been trying to earn their way in. So I think we must understand that is not the proper interpretation either. This is not teaching works righteousness. A second popular view today understands the least of these my brothers as being a reference to Jewish people. Particularly this view sees our passage as describing a judgment of Gentiles who will be evaluated based on how they treated the Jews during the Great Tribulation period at the end of history. Frankly, the problem with this view is it's totally foreign to Matthew's Gospel. For instance, when Jesus speaks about my brothers in this book, and he does twice, he never once uses that language to speak about uh, Jewish people. In fact, he explicitly indicates that his brothers are not simply those who share a common ancestry with him. We're going to see that in just a minute. Moreover, I've already shown that this scene is not just a judgment of Gentiles alive on the earth when Jesus returns. And third, I would say here, this approach totally misses the point of the the Gospel of Matthew in some ways. I mean, there is uh, this notion that people read this book and say, what's all about Jews and it's all about Israel because we see a lot of Old Testament in it. Okay, from chapter 1 and Jesus' genealogy, we have seen, yes, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who brings Gentiles into his kingdom. This idea of Jews being favored insiders and Gentiles being outsiders on the basis of ethnicity is so comprehensively and absolutely refuted throughout this entire book that this second interpretation makes no sense. So this brings us to our third view, which I think has to be correct. And this view holds that the least of these my brothers refers to believers. We know this is correct from a number of places in Matthew. First, Jesus uses the phrase, my brothers, elsewhere in this book. Matthew 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, that's Jesus, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's the disciples. It's those who have responded appropriately to the gospel. They are the people who are Jesus' brothers. The same way Matthew twenty-eight ten, Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And again, he's talking about the disciples. Likewise, we find language very similar to the least of these throughout Matthew's gospel, talking about the disciples. Matthew ten forty-two. As Jesus sends his disciples on their missionary journey. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The little one is a disciple. In the same way, we find the same language three times in chapter 18. So the deeds Jesus is commending here are deeds of kindness performed for his disciples, for believers. And Jesus says that whatever has been done to the disciples has been done to him. This shows the degree of solidarity and closeness that Jesus has with those who belong to him. And again, we see this elsewhere in the Bible. Matthew 10, 40, he says to the disciples, Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever shows respect and kindness to the disciples in their missionary labors is basically doing the same to Christ. It's credited as though they'd done it to Christ. Or on the flip side, in Acts 9, as the risen Jesus confronts the persecutor Saul, He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul is persecuting the church. But Jesus says, no, you're actually persecuting me. Whatever you do to my people, you're doing to me. All right. Now maybe you say, okay, that's all well and good. But Jesus is talking about judging people based on their works. Is this not fundamentally contrary to the gospel? I don't think so, and I'll give you two reasons. First, although the Bible is crystal clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and not on the basis of our works, the Bible often says God judges works. Let me give you a sampling of six verses across the scripture. Psalm sixty two twelve says, For you will render to a man according to his work. Isaiah three ten. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked. It shall be ill with him, for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. Jeremiah seventeen ten, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Elsewhere in Matthew, chapter 16, verse 27. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Romans 2.6, he will render to each one according to his works. And one of the last verses of the Bible, Revelation 22.12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, this idea that God judges our works would seem to be bad news. Because we're sinners. We've all done terrible things in thought and deed. Indeed, Revelation 20 verse 13 speaks of the lost, saying they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done, and right afterwards they are cast into the lake of fire. I think we're okay with that. But I think what might be a bit new and challenging to us here is this idea that works appear in a positive evaluation and judgment. How should we understand this? One commentator has said that while works are not the root of our salvation, they are the fruit of it, And I think that's right. If apart from a right relationship with God, all of our works are but filthy rags in His sight, then any work that God commends can only be the product of a real relationship with Him, grounded in true faith. And I think that's what we see here. Because the works Jesus is talking about here are deeds of kindness performed for the benefit of believers. Now in Matthew, we've seen Jesus talk about how believers are going to be treated in the world. What's he say? Twice, he said, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Friends, the world hates God's people. Unbelievers hate God's people. They aren't going to do us any kindnesses because we love Jesus. But here Jesus speaks to people who have done kindnesses to believers. They're not minor kindnesses. They have fed the hungry. They've opened their homes to the homeless. There's a cost for that, right? Nursing them while they're ill, man, that's risky. You know what's even riskier? Going to visit them in prison while they're persecuted and showing the Romans, hey, I'm a Christian too. Who's going to do those kind of sacrificial acts for believers? It's got to be other believers. See, the deeds that Jesus commends here are not deeds that merit and earn God's favor. No, these deeds are the evidence of true faith. Listen to another passage that I think makes this same point. First John chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. There's many places where the Bible speaks about the fruit which is produced by true faith. We've talked about some of these last week. Uh, True faith perseveres to the end. True faith makes us want to obey God's word. True faith changes us so we don't live the way we used to. True faith prepares us for the end. And one more thing the Bible tells us about true faith is it produces good works. That's why right after Paul says we're not saved by works in Ephesians 2, he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why James 2 says, I will show you my faith by my works. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And one good work produced by true faith is true sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 3:16 says by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. What is real love? It's not posting stuff on Facebook about, I love you, and the have a smiley picture. John's talking about real love, love that's indeed in and truth, love that sacrifices, love that hurts. And the standard is Jesus, who laid down his life for us, who bore the wrath of the Father to win us, who tasted death that we might be reconciled to him. We are to love like Jesus loved, sacrificially. Brothers and sisters, do we have that kind of a love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord? I think that's what this passage is challenging us to ask ourselves. If we read this, I don't think we can help but ask ourselves, what does this area of my life reveal about my claim of faith? True faith produces a true love for believers, and therefore a lack of true love for believers indicates a lack of true faith. So, friend, how do you view believers? The world hates Christians. The world laughs at Christians. Do you relate to that? Do you really dislike hearing other people talk about Jesus? Do you have an aversion to prayer? Do you get angry when somebody wants to talk about their church? Do you turn away when you see somebody reading their Bible? Do you just have a low opinion of people who want to live holy lives or talk about Jesus a lot? Friend, how do you interact when you see a professing Christian in need? Are you quick to want to pitch in and help alleviate their burden or do you not want to be bothered oh maybe like the guy in James you're willing to say a few pious phrases over them be warmed and filled brother maybe you say I'll pray for you but you know you usually won't you won't be bothered to give up any time or money or energy to do anything about their need is that you friend now please don't misunderstand I'm not saying we've got to give a handout to everybody who shows up saying give me we need to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us We should only give to legitimate needs. And let me also be clear that we shouldn't only do good to fellow believers. We should show love to everyone. Galatians 6 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those of the household of faith. Friends, do we see any evidence of this in our lives? Do we do good to the household of faith? Because on the last day, Jesus isn't just going to let everybody who makes a profession of faith into his kingdom. The guys in Matthew 7 who get turned away are saying, Lord, Lord, they've got a profession. But what else does Jesus say back in chapter 7? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Friends, Jesus is going to look at our lives, and he's going to see if our lives bear the evidence of true faith or not. And that's what this passage is asking us. This is a gracious warning. We need to examine ourselves before judgment day. But I want to be really clear here about the application. If you have heard what I've just said, and you say, you know, I really don't like Christians. I'm here because I don't want to be, but, you know, somebody else made me come. You know, Christians are stupid. If, that's, if you look in your heart, and that's really how, how you feel. I don't want you to think that the application here is you need to try really hard to conjure up this kind of love in yourself. Because by so doing, you can save yourself. That's not right. Nor is the application here, fake it till you make it. Make sure I'm here every week with a smile on my face and do a bunch of nice things and I'll birth this kind of love in my life. No. The application here is this. If you look at this test and you say, man, I I don't know if, if this is describing me. What you need to do is run to Christ, repent, and believe the gospel. Because the love that's described here is a fruit of true conversion which can come about only by a right response to the gospel. Believing that Jesus is God and man, that he died for us on the cross and rose again, that salvation is available only by receiving God's grace through repentant faith in Christ alone. That is the only way we will withstand final judgment. That is the only way we will produce the love that's described in this passage. But we come now to our last point. And here we see the only two possible outcomes that result from Jesus' judgment. Look at verse 46. He says and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Back in chapter 7, Jesus says everybody is on one of two differing roads that's heading to one of two differing outcomes. Matthew 7:13 The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. You know, we all start on the broad road, we're slaves of sin. We like our sin. We just want to keep sinning. And the end of that road is destruction. But there's another path. A hard path. The path of repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that path alone leads to life. And now once more we see this same truth. And one commentary says, The two ways, and there is no third, part forever. And that's right. There are two ultimate destinies of humanity. And friends, they are both ultimate, for Jesus calls them both eternal. They both belong to the age to come, which is infinite in duration. Now let's start where Jesus starts in verse 46, with the ultimate end of the lost, those whose lives do not bear the marks of true faith. Jesus says they will go away into eternal punishment. That Greek word means something like retribution. They will suffer in a way that avenges the evils they've done in life. This punishment is further clarified in verse 41 as Jesus directs the lost to depart into eternal fire. Twelve times in Matthew, the final destiny of the lost is described as involving fire or burning. And twice, in chapters 5 and 18, Jesus warns about the hell of fire. Now that is not the only description of hell in this book. Three other times, Jesus speaks of hell not as fire, but as a place of outer darkness. Now, whether hell consists of literal darkness and burning or something far worse that cannot be communicated in language, we don't know, but clearly hell is a horrible reality. It is the tragedy of the ages. And it is such a horrific tragedy that at various points in Christian history, people have tried to soften this truth. One way people have tried to soften this truth is they've taught universalism, that everybody will one day be saved. This was first proposed in the second century by a group of people called allegorists who said we don't accept the literal interpretation of the Bible. And so, of course, they basically just interpreted by their own imagination and came up with universalism. Their initial attempts to popularize this view failed, but it was picked up again in the 19th century by liberal Protestants who have embraced it to the present day. There was an attempt to bring universalism into the mainstream of evangelical Christianity about a decade ago, by megachurch pastor Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, in which he argued that after death, everybody goes to the same place. If you love God, that place for you will be heaven. If you don't, it will be hell, and eventually God's love will win everybody over. There's just one problem with all of this. It's totally contrary to what the Bible says. Because here we see the ultimate fate of the wicked is distinct from the ultimate fate of God's people. They are on separate paths leading to separate places. Heaven isn't hell. Hell isn't heaven. And you can't cross between them. In the parable in Luke 16, Jesus speaks of a great chasm separating uh, the place of of the lost and the saved. So that none may cross from there to here. Friend, wherever you go, there you stay with no chance of a reprieve. When you die, your fate is locked in and it is irreversible. So universalism is false. Others have tried to soften the teaching of hell by holding to a view variously called annihilationism or conditional immortality. This idea holds that while the fires of hell endure forever, the experience of hell does not, because eventually the afflicted person is consumed and made non-existent. I think this view has a number of significant problems. For the sake of time, I'll just give two. First, every time the experience of hell is described in the New Testament, it is described as being endured consciously. Now, this is why annihilationists often want to talk about what the Old Testament says about the final fate of the lost, because it doesn't say much about them. But, of course, we believe in the doctrine of progressive revelation. The later clarifies the earlier. And usually what we find is the later intensifies the earlier. So, for example, very little is said about the glories for believers in the Old Testament. The New Testament says a lot more, and it makes them sound a lot better. It's revealing with greater clarity. So it also is with hell. Much more is said in the New Testament, and the penalty is clearly described as being much worse. Consistently in the New Testament, hell is described in terms of conscious torment. For example, in Matthew, we have repeatedly seen the phrase, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a conscious bodily response to torment. Or consider the experience of the rich man in Luke 16 who verbally describes his anguish. Or Revelation 14.11 says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. It's one of the most horrifying verses in the Bible. And it's no defense to say here, well, oh, the verse is only saying the smoke lasts forever. Because it goes on to describe the experience of those in hell as eternal restlessness. Similarly, chapter 25, verse 41, specifies that the eternal fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. This is my second argument against annihilation. How does the Bible tell us that Satan will experience hell? Revelation 20, verse 10 says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a pretty good piece of evidence that tells us not just about Satan, but how two of his human minions will experience hell. It will They will endure eternal conscious torment. Based on this evidence, and the lack of any clear, specific evidence to the contrary, I think we likewise must conclude that those in hell experience eternal conscious torment. Now, in chapter 11, Jesus says there are varying degrees of punishment, so I think we should understand that there are gradations of intensity in hell but friends this is a very serious and solemn subject is it not to contemplate hell is to seriously think about horror because it is a horror beyond horrors And Jesus says in Mark 9 it is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched maybe to us today that sounds like an unjust overreaction to sin but I would humbly suggest that God understands our sin better than we do He sees it as it really is, with eyes untainted by sin as ours are. He is just and good and righteous, and we can trust him if he has decreed that this is the awful, just price of our treason. Friend, I want you to know there is nothing worse than the truth of hell. It is a horror beyond imagining, and it is real. People are going there. People we know and love are going there. Maybe some of us are going there. I plead with you, in the name of Jesus Christ, do not go to hell, because there is an alternative, a glorious alternative. Verse 46 calls it eternal life. Jesus amplifies this back in thirty-six, verse 36 as he speaks of the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Now, when people see the word kingdom here, sometimes they say, well, is this judgment leading to a millennial kingdom? Is this leading to the new creation? Friends... This prophecy was given before any of the rest of that was revealed with clarity. So I think it is fruitless to try to split those hairs here. Instead, let's just delight in what we see in the Bible about the the glories of heaven. Friends, God has prepared a place for his people from before time began. Hebrews 11 calls it the city whose designer and builder is God. It is the place in 2 Peter 3 where righteousness dwells. Doesn't that sound good? You live here in Houston, don't you want to live where righteousness dwells? It's a place that Jesus has said before in this book is where the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 8 says it's a place where many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be like a great wedding feast, a time of immense joy, good food to eat, good things to drink, a good time to be had. And what a guest list from the patriarchs on down through the age. And friends, it's never going to end. The clearest depiction of heaven is is found in Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, the new Jerusalem is a place of sensory reality and delight. got to remember, the biblical hope is not that we fade to white in some kind of collective consciousness like something out of an Eastern religion. It's not some disembodied hope like you see in a cartoon floating around on a cloud plucking a harp. No friends, our bodies will be raised and glorified and we will see the river of life and we will taste the fruit of the tree of life and we will hear the breeze rustle through its leaves. Friends, it will be real and it will be glory. It will be a place of service. We're told that his servants will worship him. Now that term, wor- worship, can mean serve. And we've seen that in Matthew's gospel. Eternal rewards consisting of receiving duties of varying degrees of importance in heaven. So we will have jobs. Perhaps unlike this world, we will like our jobs. And performing them will be an act of glorious, joyful worship. But I want to tell you most importantly, what will make the new Jerusalem heaven is that God will be there. Revelation 21.3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. No more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow because there will be no more sin. A new creation that will never fall again. The new and better garden where we will dwell in the glory and bliss of Christ forever. Oh, friends, let us not doubt the goodness of the God who has put this place on offer to us. It is real. And my prayer is that you will be there. But make no mistake, there are just these two destinies. Both belonging to the age to come. Both endless in duration and experience. And they could not be more different. So how do we inherit heaven? How do we avoid hell? It's the same solution we've seen to everything else in the Olivet Discourse. You know, in this discourse, Jesus has prophesied the course of history. And everything he said has come true. The last 2,000 years have been terrible. Filled with religious deception and war and disaster and horror. You say, how do I stay sane in the midst of this crazy world? Friends, you need the hope of the gospel. In this discourse, Jesus has said the end is coming. He will return. There will be fearsome judgments on the earth and then this final judgment. We need to be ready for the end. How? With the gospel. How are we going to withstand final judgment in the end? Not merely with an empty profession of faith, but with real repentant faith that bears the fruit of true conversion as described in the Bible. And friends, we can have that only through the gospel. To inherit heaven and avoid hell we must believe in the gospel so friend wherever you are today you need to know the gospel which is that friends we have all sinned we have all earned the horrors of this hell by our rebellion against god but jesus who is god and man who lived a perfect sinless life chose to bear the full measure of the penalty for our sin on the cross in love He died the death that we each deserve to die. He has risen triumphantly over the dead, over death and Satan and sin and hell. And now, friends, everyone everywhere is commanded to have repentant faith in him. We must turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And, friends, if we do that, we will inherit the glory of New Jerusalem. But if not, we will experience the unending measure of God's wrath in hell. And so I end With this charge from Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death. Choose life that you may live.